0: Exodus chapter 14. If you could turn there with me, and we're going to look at uh, an account that's always fired my imagination. I think it does that, this account of the crossing of the Red Sea. And I remember early on wanting to see this depicted. Of course, uh, the depictions that we have in our media don't do it justice and aren't accurate according to the text. Charlton Heston's The Ten Commandments, that's not the way it happened. An even better movie, The Prince of Egypt, that's not the way it happened either. And also, I was really interested early on, I wonder if they ever found like any of those chariots in the Red Sea. And of course, if you're interested in that line of inquiry and you just go on YouTube and type in Red Sea Crossing, you're going to get some really bad information there as well. So I want you to avoid all that. If you ever see anything labeled Ron Wyatt, don't go there. They haven't found anything in the Red Sea. And in fact, if you want to find anything good in terms of biblical archaeology on this, uh, you ought to go to a website or an organization like Associates for Biblical Research. They've done a lot of good work on this. Uh, They have located some of these place names that we uh, read about in Scripture, and it actually does help us understand what's going on in the text. That's Associates for Biblical Research, not Ron Wyatt. Having said all that, let's read the account, and then let us enter in. Exodus 14, beginning to read at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-harahoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And took six hundred chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who is going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. and The Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left the egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea all pharaoh's horses his chariots and his horsemen and in the morning watched the lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back over the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. The waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses." Again, we thank God for his word. And now let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we pray once again that you would be our help tonight. We pray that we would be physically. Strengthen in our bodies to pay attention, make our, our ears alert, make our minds sharp. Uh, beyond those physical things, we pray that you would do that spiritual work because we don't just want uh, the Word to stay in our minds. We want it to reach down deeply into our hearts and change us. We want to uh, live those lives that are praiseworthy to you. So help us by your Spirit and by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thus the Lord saved Israel. So that's a theological comment on that particular narrative. We don't often get theological comments in narrative in Scripture, but we do in this case in Exodus chapter 14, and that basically drives our understanding of what we're to take away from this passage of Scripture. And that might seem uh, very simple, but we're going to drive down into it. We want to see how helpless Israel was in that and how powerful God was in that. And to set us up for those two main points, I want to talk about a salvation incident in my life to illustrate the point. I, I was one of those kids that, if my parents knew half the things that I got myself involved in, they would have shuddered at the time and. Probably would have had a lot of sleepless nights. Uh, One of those incidents took right next to our home. We lived next to a a park in the city of Toronto. And next to that park, there was an arena with a very large parking lot. And in the course of the winter months, back in that little ice age that we had back in the 1970s, lots and lots of snow. So those, those plows would come and plow the parking lot and build up these big mounds. And my brother and I decided to go out one night And kind of play a little bit of chicken with the plow. Uh, We would be on the other side of those hills that it was plowing, and he couldn't see us, and as it was approaching, we would run down the hill. Now, really, really stupid, because on one of those occasions, my timing was off, and he covered me with snow up to my neck. My brother got away. This is the way I remember it, and For a little bit of drama, he was going to come with the next shovel of snow. And you can imagine what would have happened to me. So my older brother, being the good brother that he was, he was desperately trying to pull me out. And just before that next bunch of snow came toppling over the top of that hill to cover me, he pulled me out. I still remember to this day I left a boot behind. I don't know how I explained that to my parents. But that boot didn't see the light of day until spring. So in all of that helpless in salvation, was I, and my brother, powerful to save me in that act. That's no less true when it comes to the act of eternal salvation. And beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought not just to see that at the beginning of our Christian lives, but all our lives through We, as the objects in the act of salvation, absolutely helpless. God, as the subject in the act of salvation, the one doing the saving, absolutely powerful. We're saved because of Him. All the glory goes to Him, and happy in Him and in His glory are the people who are saved. Such are the people of God. We're not surprised to find this stressed in the gospel, in our New Testament scriptures, and we shouldn't be surprised to find it stressed in the Old Testament scriptures, which prepare us for what is revealed in the New Testament. And what we have in the Old Testament are pictures. What is true of the reality, so too the picture. Or to put it another way, what is true of the substance in the gospel of Jesus Christ, so too with the shadow What is true of the anti-type, to put it another way, so too with the type, and so too in our text tonight. So I've made this statement because I think it's very important by way of context that the book of Exodus relates the story of Israel's redemption from bondage in Egypt, and it's a story that prefigures the greatest salvation story ever, our redemption from sin and death through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, His life and His death. And in that, I'm giving you a way of reading Old Testament Scripture and this particular account, and I'm not just making it up. Uh, We get in this particular account uh, kind of another redemption story within that greater redemption story, and we actually see in the, the New Testament Scriptures that it uses this story as analogous, analogous to the greater story of redemption. You see that in 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 2. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. He's looking at That story of redemption, and it is analogous to our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the New Testament itself makes this kind of connection. It's also a story that's really, really important in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's mentioned over and over again, this this story and this theological truth that if we are going to be saved, we're going to need an all-powerful God to do it. And you see it in places like uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 11, if you're jotting down notes, Psalm 74, verse 13, Psalm 78, verse 13, Psalm 106 verse 9, Psalm 114, verse 3, Isaiah 51:10, and Isaiah 63:12. And I don't say that those are all the references, but that just gives you a sampling. So as we, we work through this, And as we consider the nature of the Lord's salvation of His people through the Red Sea, what we ought to be thinking of is the nature of the Lord's salvation of us through Jesus Christ. And as we work through the text, my goal is really, really simple with the help of the Spirit. It's to kill the worship of self and enliven in each and every one of us worship of our God. My goal is to make you happy in this one who saves from first to last those who can't save themselves. Point number one, we've got the object in the saving act, and we see helpless, verses 1 to 15. The focus in this section is on the helplessness of the people of God, and it's really to prepare us to say, you know, if they're going to be saved, these people, God's going to need to do it alone and so that God gains all the glory. But I want us to notice 2 subpoints under this broader point of the object in the saving act, the people of Israel being helpless. First of all, notice the people's position. This is in verses 1 to 9, but I'm just going to reread for you verses 1 to 2. And if you go on to uh, the Associates for Biblical Research, their website, they got a nice little map, and it well displays. They're not lining up against what we now know as the Big Red Sea. What they've demonstrated is how pinned in they were geographically. And so there's a wonderful map there. You're just going to have to trust me for it. I probably should have had it up on the screen. But Associates for Biblical Research have the map. If you just type in one of these place names, it will come up. So notice the people's position and notice that it's the Lord that actually initiates this position. The Lord said to Moses, "Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Hararoth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea." Again, if you look at a map, you'll see not a favorable position at all for the Israelites. Really a dead end. They had the sea at their backs and they're pinned in by the land. A place with no way out. And again, notice in the text, it's the Lord who ordained that they ought to be in this place, led them to this place, that they should be in such a hemmed-in position. Now, of course, the question is, why would God do that? And our text says very plainly, so that he could undo the enemies of the people of God. Verses 3 and 4, For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Verses 5 to 9, we see Pharaoh and the Egyptians took the Lord's bait. The Lord drew the enemies of his people to their own destruction. I thought about that, thinking about the enemies of the people of God and how God ordained that greater salvation, and it seems to me this is exactly what the Lord did with Satan. Satan gets duped. Satan, of course, knew of the promised seed. He was there when the promise was made, back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan wasn't privy to all of God's plan. He came to know who the Son of God was. And he knew that the Christ was sent into the world to save his people. He would have heard the name Jesus, which is what that name means. Jehovah will save his people from their sins, or Yahweh will save his people from their sins. And he knew that this Christ was sent into the world to save his people to be sure. But he never ever conceived it would come through the weakness of death. You just think about how he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find at the end of that grand drama of redemption, Satan inciting people to destroy him. But of course, through his death on the cross, not only was the salvation of God's people secured, but Satan's own destruction. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, Colossians 2.15. But that's not the only reason why the Lord led his people to this helpless position, not only to undo the enemies of the people of God. He ordained that his people should be in such a place where there was no way out, at least humanly speaking, One writer put it this way, he led them into a position in which they were not able to save themselves, and they could only depend on him for deliverance. And that's the case with us. Think of God's plan of redemption in big macro kind of terms. Think of the fall, think of its consequences. We, inheriting that guilty verdict and Corruption of our first father Adam. Think of what it is required of God if we are to stand before Him and be with Him, a perfect righteousness. And and think about this that in and of ourselves, that is humanly impossible. And spiritually speaking, We are right there with the children of Israel. We're encamped in front of Pi Hararoth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal Zephon. We're sitting ducks. We are dead men and dead women. That's how God ordained it. But he ordained that we be in that position, not only that he might gain glory over our enemies, but that he might gain glory in the salvation of a helpless people and put on display what is impossible with man is impossible with God. Just as a side note, look at verse 8. And Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel while the people were going out defiantly. It's not just leap off the page. I mean, the earlier part of the redemption story was spectacular in and of itself when you think about the Passover. And now they're all high on themselves, aren't they? The people of Israel going out defiantly, another translation, boldly or triumphantly. And I go, wow, wow. Having been saved by the blood, the people march out, cocksure of themselves, eyes off the Lord. That's what's going on here. And I thought, we can be exactly like that. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, our spiritual lives from day one of our Christian life until the day God calls us home, it's a miracle of God's grace. You might just think the miracle happened at the beginning of your Christian life. Every single day, a miracle. It's an absolute miracle that you're still a Christian tonight. And because that is so, we are to march out humbly, looking to Him for grace, the grace that we need to help us along the way. So you've got the people's position. That demonstrates their helplessness. And then you've got the people's posture. Wow. Verses 10 to 15. Pharaoh and the Egyptians catch up to the Israelites and all of a sudden, that defiance and that boldness and that bravery and that courage, it just evaporates like nothing, and they panic. And they complain to Moses, but you notice in the text, it's a complaint that they actually made to Moses while they were in Egypt. Better for us to serve the Egyptians. I don't think I would never noticed that in the text before. They'd actually made that complaint even before they left Egypt. One commentator is quite blunt. Their posture was not toward God, but toward Egypt. He said, service of the Egyptians was regarded as better than service of the Lord. No orientation toward this God. The orientation toward Egypt. When you think about us and our natural state, that's exactly us. We not only can't do anything to get God, we don't want Him. That's the problem. Grapple with the imagery that the New Testament uses to describe us. And I don't care if you're growing up in a Christian home or not. Outside of God's grace, outside of God's instrumentality in regenerating you through the Holy Spirit, that birth from above, we are blind, we are deaf, we're mute, and we're lame. It means we don't see God, we don't hear God, we're mute to sing his praises, and we can't get to Him. And above all those images, dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead to God. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, 10 to 18, and that's a description of each and every one of you prior to your conversion. What a predicament we were in toward Egypt. It's a posture that only God can deliver us from again through a rebirth and us by the Spirit so that we see God as the one who satisfies and see that it is through one, our beautiful Savior, as we sung about, that we can have Him. It's the only way that it can happen. Back to our text, verse 13. Moses said to the people, "'Fear not, stand firm.'" And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. So there's a little bit of a sidebar here. I know some of our translations read verse 14 in this way The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be still. Don't move. The best translation is to be silent stop talking. I think that deserves some elaboration and an application. It's actually a translation that's borne out by the context, because if you read on in verse 15, the Lord actually says to Moses, why are you crying out to me? There's even a sidebar of the sidebar here. Isn't that interesting, a little bit ironic? Moses told the people to be silent before the Lord, but then spoke to the Lord evidently with words that were contrary to God's express command. I thought, can't we be like that? Much easier to tell others to be silent before God's word than ourselves. That's Moses. Now, getting back to that 1st subpoint, that first sidebar, isn't being silent before this God and before His word Absolutely essential if we are to be saved. Have conversations with people. You display how it is they might come before a holy God, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in his life and his death, appropriating that by faith. You read some of those texts, like the Philippian jailer what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Or you go to Romans 10, 9 or something else. And then you get objections thrown up like, you know, I'm waiting for God to give me a sign that he is. Fool. God has not said he would do that. God has said be silent and do what I command you to do. Repent and come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I don't know if you're like that tonight or you know somebody like that. What they're doing is fleecing God. God doesn't want to be fleeced, picking up on that imagery from the story of Gideon. What he wants is for you to listen to his Word. That's no less true when it comes to the Christian life. How many of us throw up objections, checking ourselves out from being under the sound of the Word, whether privately or corporately, and effectively saying, I don't need a steady diet of the Word for growth. Be silent. Stop talking back. Be silent before His Word. James spells this out, talking about the Word of God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And he's going to talk about a particular gift. And its uses and its powers, the gift of His Word. Of His own will He brought us forth by the Word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And then the application for now, for Christian living. Know this. My beloved brothers, this isn't speaking about relationships here. It's speaking about this relationship. Know this, my beloved brothers. Be silent. He doesn't say that in so many words. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. It's all about this relationship. Be silent before his word. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Be silent before his word and you will be saved. It's a great sidebar and probably there could be more said on that. Well, we go back to the main point, point Point number one, the object in the saving act. What do we see? Absolutely, completely helpless. Point number two, the subject in the saving act, of course, is God, and we see that He is all-powerful to save, verses 16 to 29. The Lord instructs Moses what to do, he tells him exactly what will happen. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the Israelites might go through and that the Egyptians might be overthrown and that I might gain glory for myself. I will get glory. Verse 17, You saw it also in verse 4. We see it again in verse 18. Does that bother you? God gets all the glory in this. Ever struggle with the God-centeredness of God, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profane? My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 48, verse 11. God completely committed to His glory. Now back to the text. We read that the angel of the Lord acted as a buffer between the Israelites and the Egyptians. It's a little bit of a one of those texts that... Uh, Translators struggle to translate, but the basic idea is that that pillar of cloud and fire was like a wall between both the hosts of the Egyptians and the Israelites. Then after that, what do we read? Subpoint point number one, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the emphasis is on the Israelites being saved. They went through. I, again, just try to imagine myself there. Try to imagine myself unbelieving. And then, of course, this happens. That east wind comes over the course of the night, and they're able to go through, try to imagine what that would have been like. And I just try to imagine what it was like being on the other side after all is said and done, and then the water comes back, and just thinking to myself, wow. Wow. I was aptly... Absolutely helpless in that. The Lord did it all. He came through in such an extraordinary way. The faithful did sing. We're going to see that in chapter 15. Song of Moses and also the song of Miriam. And we should be exactly the same way. Called to give thanks to the Father who has, as Paul put it in Colossians, put that image of going through the Red Sea and just think about kingdom of darkness and kingdom of God's beloved Son and just look back for a moment. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I love putting those Old Testament images and pictures over the New Testament grand story of redemption. There is something that I want to say here in verse 22. So in all of this we see God is almighty. He's the one that's powerful. He's the one that does the work. His action is ultimately decisive. But we do actually see the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea and on the dry ground. They actually walk through. I don't know how that length of distance, what it was, but they were actually doing the walking. And I came across a concept that you often see in Scripture. i reading a book by our brother John Piper. hope to pick it up in our adult Bible class uh, called Reading the Bible Supernaturally. And he put it this way. Uh, I've never heard it actually put this way, but it's true. You see it all over the place in Scripture. God gives the miracle, and we actually act it. We act the miracle. The Bible makes plain that Christian living is pervasively supernatural, meaning it is pervasively sustained and shaped by God in ways that lead to final salvation. We are talking about God's special new covenant work purchased for the elect by the blood of Christ that by the Spirit enables God's people to see the glory of Christ and live in a way that shows His supreme worth. God gives the miracle, and we act the miracle. And even when you think about salvation, whether you think about it in a broad sense or in a restricted sense, our acting is essential, but His miracle is decisive. You struggle with those words? I think they're accurate biblically. Let me give you one proof text in this, and hopefully we'll develop this more in our Bible class. Philippians 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. With fear and trembling are acting essential. But it's in the context of a miracle. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's a bit of a mind-bender. You see it all throughout the New Testament Scriptures. And again, this does not take away from God's work being ultimately decisive, and without Him, we would never be saved. There's a second point here. We saw what God did for the Israelites. Now we need to see Moses stretching out his hand over the sea and the Egyptians being taken care of. They are overthrown in verses 26 to 29. And the thing that really jumped out at me in this portion of the narrative is verse 28. It's how complete, how complete was the salvation that God procured for the Israelites. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. Said one writer, the account stresses the completeness of the victory. And that's a thing that's stressed too in our salvation in the New Testament, the completeness of the victory God won for us in Jesus Christ. Mark it, our sins past, present, future, nailed to the cross— In this life, our enemy is powerless to snatch us from our Father's hand. And in the life to come, no chance for any fall again. No chance for sin again. No sinners in the new creation. Sinners, Satan, death, all gone, never to return. There is no more sea. Revelation 21, verse 1. It's glorious. How complete is our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ? So, point here, the subject in the saving act, powerful indeed, all-powerful. The psalmist sums it up this way, Psalm 106, verses 9 to 12, "...He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and He led them through the deepest through a desert. So He saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy." And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. And that brings us to our conclusion. I'm going to read those verses in verse 30 and 31. And there's a word there. First time it appears in the Scriptures. Can you guess what it is? Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. so The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thus, the Lord saved Israel. Again, theological comment on the narrative. Said one writer, these verses contain the summary account of the crossing of the Israelites on the dry seabed together with a theological comment concerning the nature of the event. Thus, the Lord saved Israel. What happened was a display of God's saving power, the verb save, being used for the very first time here when God is the subject and Israel the object. So what should be our response to all of this? As we think on that greater salvation story, our helplessness, and our all-powerful God who did everything we stood in need of in Jesus Christ, we confess exactly the same thing, except we change the words just a little bit, thus the Lord saved me. Amen? Thus the Lord saved me. We don't just stop there, but we continue to worship we do that every single day of our lives because that's a reasonable response. Happy are you, O Israel, O Church. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? Who is like us indeed? Let's pray. We worship you, gracious God, for without you, we would be on the road to perdition. We would have the prospect of an eternity in hell. But for your own glory and in your own good pleasure, you set your love upon us. Jesus, your blessed Son, came to purchase us by his shed blood on the cross. And blessed Spirit of the living God, you made us alive to see God and his beauty and to see his provision of the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation, granting us repentance and faith. And so we do worship you. Help us to love you more for Jesus' sake. Amen.